Well, Merry Christmas. I do hope you will join us tomorrow night for uh, one of our most popular services in the whole year for the community. Normally we have a packed house, 9 o'clock, we get you out of here, about 40, 45 minutes. It's a service that concentrates on carols, Christmas carols, and scripture. And so we look forward to seeing you tomorrow night uh, for that. Uh, You know, a couple of weeks ago when we last gathered around God's Word, uh, we were talking about the peace of God at Christmas and beyond. Out of Isaiah 26, He who keeps his mind stayed on you, I will keep him in perfect peace. This morning, we're going to look at a twin thought to that when we talk about the peace of God. What else do we think about? We think about the grace of God. And so today we'll be looking at the grace of God at Christmas and beyond out of Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Last year I concentrated on the traditional Christmas uh, narratives out of Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 2. This year a bit different out of uh, Isaiah and out of Titus. Uh, trying to expose our folks to different portions of the Word of God. But again today, Titus chapter 2. And what I want you to do as you find this verse, uh, or this passage rather, verses 11 to 14, I want you to see how he concentrates on the grace of God affecting us past, present, and future. We're going to see all three aspects to our salvation that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Justification, redemption, past. Sanctification now, glorification, future. And we're going to see how the grace of God is woven through all of those aspects. Okay? He says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you hear it? Past, present, future. The grace of God that transcends all of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace that is chiefly seen in the incarnation. Thank you, Lord, for intervening for us in the greatest way possible, doing what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, help us to understand that and understanding your grace. May we live lives of gratitude. And may we live lives that are poured out as a drink offering for you.
For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared. With Christmas only two days away, I want you to think about that phrase this morning. The grace of God has appeared. Now folks, without a doubt, the word grace, one of the greatest words in the Bible. Peter calls God the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10. In Acts 20 verse 24, uh, that verse refers to the gospel as the gospel of the grace of God. And then there's our favorite hymn in the church. In fact, favorite hymn the world over. What is it? Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. God's grace is amazing. This morning I want us to think about the ramifications of God's grace. And what we're going to see is that the Christian life begins in grace, it continues in grace, and it ends or consummates in grace. God's grace. Let's look at that together. First of all, I want you to see the saving power of God's grace. The saving power of God's grace. Verse 11, underscore that verse in your Bible. Take a pen out or a pencil and underline the first part of verse 11 where he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Folks, if we did not know the biblical story of redemption, That phrase would leave us with all sorts of questions. How did it appear? When did it appear? Why did it appear? But knowing the biblical story, we see why, we know why. The Bible says that we are sinners and without Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now folks, there's two basic problems with the way people look at mankind today and both of them are wrong. We need to see the biblical view, which is a balance between the two. But on the one hand, people view man Uh, too low, too low. They think man's just some kind of sophisticated animal and he's evolved and he's become, he's become something great because he's evolved more so than the other parts uh, of the animal creation around us. That's a very low view of mankind. The other view of mankind is too high. You'll find people today who do not believe that man is born in sin. At best, they say man's born with a clean slate, and he is, if he has the proper opportunities, the proper education, the proper environment, he can achieve some type of utopian life or existence. That's the other extreme. 
Again, we need the biblical balance. Yes, man was created in the image of God. In Genesis 1, the Godhead, the Trinity said, let us make man in our image. And and the Bible says God created man, male and female, in his image. Now, folks, that is a monumental phrase when you think about it. It's not said of anything else in the created order. Being made in the image of God. That's where human worth and dignity comes from. Think about that, being made in the image of God. Then man fell in sin and so the image of God was marred. It was not erased. We know it wasn't erased because even God's words to Noah after the fall. God affirmed once again that man was made in the image of God. And so after the fall, the image was marred but not erased. Man is conceived in sin. When Adam sinned, we all sinned because Adam was mankind at the time. And everyone since Adam has continued to do what Adam did. And so, yes, created higher than everything else, but today, apart from Christ, dead in trespasses and sins, and desperately in need of redemption. And all through the Bible, we see that beautiful, wonderful story of redemption. We see God pursuing man to restore man to a relationship with God. What do we call that? Grace. Grace. All through the Bible we see grace. The Old Testament right away. You see Adam and Eve sinning. They're hiding from God. And God goes after them saying, where are you pursuing man? Grace. In Egypt, they'd been in slavery and bondage for more than 400 years. The Bible says they were crying out to God in their misery, their burden, this heavy burden the Egyptians had placed on them. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 1 that God took notice of their groanings. God noticed their need and God intervened and sent them a deliverer, Moses. All through the Old Testament you see stories like that. Of the grace of God appearing. But folks in the greatest way of all. The greatest way of all. How has the grace of God appeared? In Jesus. What John 1 1 say. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The greatest way of all in the Bible, in fact, the way in the Bible that everything else is pointing forward to would be the grace of God appearing there in the manger in Bethlehem when Jesus became a man and He went to the cross and died for our sins. The grace of God has appeared. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. 
The word appeared in verse 14 refers to a sudden arrival. It's like a sudden bursting forth, like the sun suddenly rising over the horizon in the morning. It's the word from which we get our word epiphany. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we have a sudden epiphany of the grace of God. Hebrews 1 says, God, after he spoke, Long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. And at his birth, the son of God. We see, we see the angels and the shepherds out in the field. In Luke 2 it says in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior Who is Christ the Lord. The grace of God has appeared. Amen. And what does it bring us? What's Paul say here? What's the result of God's grace? Well verse 11 points out that it brings salvation to all. Now what's he talking about here? Is he saying everybody's saved? No, that would be a heresy, universalism. The Bible nowhere teaches that. In fact, Jesus said that there's more on the road to destruction that end up in hell than even go to heaven. The Bible never teaches that everybody is saved. So what in the world does the New Testament mean when it uses words like all or for God so loved the world? What was the big raging debate in the first century? In the church. It was of Gentiles being accepted in to the church. The Jews, they struggled with that for a while. They had the mentality it was just for them. It was a tough lesson for them to learn. God's letting Gentiles, the grace of God is going to Gentiles? The grace of God is going to all the nations? What? They struggled with that. Remember how they finally overcame it? Peter, God told Peter to go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius got back and the, the Jews were outraged at him that he would go to the house of a Gentile. And he had to explain to them how the Holy Spirit fell on them too. And they said, well, you know, who would have ever thought it? I guess the grace of God is going to all. It's going to Gentiles just like it did to us. And then at the Jerusalem conference, they finally had to kind of make a a statement or a ruling on that. What I'm saying is, it was a tough lesson for them to deal with initially that the grace of God would go to all Jew and Gentile alike. But back to his point here, the grace of God offers salvation to all Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter what your background is, your nationality your language, your skin color, the grace of God in Christ is extended. We cannot obtain salvation on our own. It is a gift that appeared. You know, so many people think in terms of salvation being subtraction. The mentality that says, you know what, I got this list of a dirty dozen 
things in my life. And if I can get rid of those things, God will love me. God will accept me. And so salvation is subtraction. It's just a matter of what do I need to try to fight hard enough to get rid of in my life. And then other people think, they add to that, addition. While I get rid of these things, if I can add these things, this list over here, then I'll be saved. I told you a couple of years ago of the actress Sophia Loren in a 1999 interview. She gave a, a, a testimony in that interview. She said, I pray, I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven. I deserve it. Otherwise, God's not nice. And the Bible's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. And there were some white orchids there. She pointed over to them, supposedly. I just read about the interview. She pointed over to them. Those white orchids, that's how my heart and soul is. I'm as white and as pure as those orchids over there. I should go to heaven. I deserve it. Folks, that is the way that seems logical to some people out in the world. Just a little subtraction here, a little addition there, and I'll be good enough. God will let me in. The Bible does not say that. Scripture says the grace of God has appeared. It's not a matter of subtraction. It's not a matter of addition. It is a matter of reception. It is a gift. Jesus has done it all. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God's grace redeems us from the penalty of sin. One of these days, it'll redeem us from the presence of sin. But it defeats the penalty of sin even now. And the moment the Spirit of God drew you to faith in Jesus Christ, you were saved and the biblical words are are beautiful. You were redeemed. That's, That's slave market language. To be redeemed, you were sold into slavery. You were in bondage. You were in bondage to sin. But God redeemed you and set you free. You were justified. That's legal language. Courtroom language. Imagine standing before a judge with all these crimes against you. All of these wrongdoings against you. But the judge, but this time it's the judge of the universe. He declares you not guilty. Justified. And you're reconciled. You were an enemy to God. You were at enmity with God. And God drew you to himself and reconciled you. That's just some of the beautiful words of redemption we find in the Bible. Redeemed, justified, 
reconciled. God's done all of that. How did it happen? It happened through Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Folks, the incarnation was for the purpose of substitution. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Without the incarnation, there would be no substitution. Without substitution, I would still be guilty and you would still be guilty we would still be in our sin you see the bad news is you're a sinner the worst news is you can't save yourself but the best news is Jesus has done it for you it's so contrary to the American way of thinking the American way of thinking finish out some of these phrases for me you get what you Pay for. You get what you pay for. God helps those who help themselves. There is no such thing as a free lunch. That's the way we think. God's ways are so contrary to man's ways. Right? Three words I want you to think of. Justice, mercy, and grace. Justice, what we deserve. If God gave us what we deserve, we would all go to hell. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Now some try to mingle the two. Do your best works. And then Christ does his best grace. And you put the two together. Seems reasonable, right? Seems reasonable. But it's wrong. If you mingle works and grace, what happens to grace? The Bible says you destroy grace. Romans 11, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now stay with me a moment. I want you to see how these attitudes have gone back so long. These false attitudes of mixing the two. And how we see these even today. Um, It's not my intent to give you a lesson in church history. But one of the most basic fundamental things that ever took place in church history. Had to do with a man by the name of Augustine or Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk. Pelagius said everybody was born with a clean slate like Adam and Eve before the fall. Everybody was in Adam's state like he was in Genesis 1 and 2. Now folks, this is not what the Bible teaches. But this is what Pelagius said. Every man is born with a clean slate and he has the possibility of growing up and being without sin. Well, through the writings of Augustine and others, of course, he was condemned as a heretic. Now today we have another heresy based off of that that's usually called semi-Pelagianism. And unfortunately, it's rampant. 
in the modern day evangelical church. And again, it's a heresy. It's departed from the biblical witness. But semi-Pelagianism says, I do my best. Christ does his best. Again, you put the two together and that equals my salvation. Let me be good. Let me be good and let me trust Christ. And then Christ will fill in the gaps of what I can't do. So it's me and Christ. My salvation is a joint effort between me and Christ. If you believe that, you do not believe the biblical witness. The biblical witness is God does it all. You're, You're even conceived in sin. David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. You're you're born into, since Adam, since the fall of man, all of us come into this world in a sinful state and we ratify that sinful state by what we do. Nobody has to teach a, a toddler to do wrong. By nature and by choice, we are sinners. But the Bible says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. And and the way that Paul uses the words, I won't go into it, but the genders, the tenses, everything that he's talking about in Ephesians 2, he's pointing out that Everything related to salvation, everything, faith, grace, I mean the whole kit and caboodle from beginning to end having to do with salvation is God's gift to you. God's done it all. It's not me plus Jesus, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's the saving grace of God. Yes, you must repent and believe, come to it. But it's Jesus that does it all. It's not a Christ plus something else salvation. And then he goes on here to talk about the sanctifying power of God's grace. After talking about the saving power, that's past. Now he's talking about present, verse 12. The sanctifying, he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. We are a purified people, so we are to live like a purified people. Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this very thing that he who hath begun a good work in you will continue it into the day of Jesus Christ. What this verse shows us is that God's grace is not some one-time thing in the past when you were saved. God's grace continues in the life of the believer. Salvation's just the beginning of the journey. A couple of weeks ago I used the analogy of marriage. At the altar you say I do but you leave the church you spend the rest of your lives growing together as a married couple. Likewise the Holy Spirit draws you to faith in Christ when you're converted but then you spend the rest of your Christian life getting to know Him and allowing His Spirit to take His Word and conform you to the image of Christ. And the Bible calls that sanctification. Before we were in law school, 
before being saved. I'm talking about the law of God. What does the law do? Got a lawyer down here. What's the law do? Points out our sin, right? It highlights what the standard is. People fall short. I read about a couple traveling one night through the countryside. You could hear the bugs hitting the windshield. Pretty soon they went through a town. The bright lights came up and their three-year-old said, Look, Daddy, the lights have made the windshield dirty. When they left the town and they went out to the countryside again dark, the three-year-old said, Look, Daddy, the dark has made the windshield clean. Now, of of course, the, the light didn't make the windshield dirty. The dark didn't make it clean. The light only pointed out the dirt and the darkness hid it. That's why a lot of people don't open God's word. They see the light. It points out their dirt. They want to stay away from that. But that's what the role of the law is. The law points out our dirt and our guilt and our need of a Savior. Now that we're saved, we're no longer enrolled in law school. We are in the school of grace. And he points out here, grace teaches some things. Look in your Bible. I want you to see it for yourself. Grace teaches us God loves you the way you are. But he loves you too much to leave you the way you are, right? Those who say that grace gives them the freedom to live any way they want to, they don't really understand grace. A person who truly understands grace, who's experienced the grace of God, wants to live in a relationship with the Lord. We ought to be like Mary, who went into that room of the disciples and Jesus, broke that expensive flask of of perfume worth an entire year's wage, poured it all on the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her tears and her hair. She did all of that out of gratitude for what the Lord had done for her if we understand the saving grace of God that's how all of us ought to want to live in our daily lives with this sanctifying grace what's this sanctifying grace teach us again look in your copy of the word of God he says to live to renounce ungodliness worldly passions to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age Wow. Before you had sin and Satan as your master. Romans 6. But Romans 6 says that now in Christ you're under new management. Sin is not your master. Jesus is. Will you still commit sin? Yes, but sin, you won't. You won't want to live in it because you have a new master, Jesus. And so the Bible says, as you once yielded the members of your body to unrighteousness, now yield yourselves unto him for righteousness. That's what he's talking about here. The sanctifying grace of God gives you the desire, the strength to live every day of your life being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Be ye holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. 
Those who have experienced his sanctifying, I mean his saving grace, need to understand his sanctifying grace. Again, don't just think salvation, was I saved completely back then? Yes, absolutely. But also you're to live currently under the lordship of Christ, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, allowing him to sanctify you more and more into his likeness. That's a journey that won't be complete until you see Jesus in heaven. But the New Testament points out one of the assurances you and I have that the saving grace of God has taken place in your life in the past is the fact that now you are living under the lordship of Christ and his sanctifying grace. Where that's absent, then the former is suspect. You with me? Well, he doesn't just talk about past, saving, present, sanctifying. He jumps forward to talk about the future, the securing power of God's grace. Look at verse 13. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace impacts us in this world, but God's grace also looks beyond this world. As Paul says in Romans 8.30, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. There is coming a day of glory for the children of God. That would have been a good place for an amen. There is coming a day of glory for the children of God. When you experience the consummation of your salvation. When the circle, when it's complete, so to speak. Past, present, future. Did you realize that for every prophecy in the Bible talking about the first coming of Christ, the first advent, there are eight Prophecies that talk about the second coming. He says we're to be living with the blessed hope. I think of the testimony of Dr. A.J. Gordon. Evangelist. uh, Minister. Preaching a revival. In the revival he talks about one night he and the other guy speaking. The other guy speaking was talking about Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. There was a family there, had two daughters, one saved, one unsaved. And the, uh, the saved was always burdened and praying for her lost sister. They had a small home, so the two sisters, they shared a bedroom, even shared a bed. And that night when they left, they just heard about two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left, that went home, went to bed. And the saved sister was so burdened about her lost sister, she got up in the middle of the night to pray for her. She went down the hallway. She woke her parents up crying about her sister. They said, you want us to pray with you? She said, yes. They went out on the back patio so as not to wake the other girl. The other girl woke up. Her sister was gone. Immediately, the first words that came to her mind was what the preacher had said earlier that day. One taken, one left. She got up, went down the hallway, went into her parents' bedroom. Guess what? They were gone too. She thought, oh no. 
The preacher was right. One taken, one left. I've been left. She got so emotional, so disturbed. They, they heard her. They came in the house. Sat down with her. Consoled her. They were able to lead her to faith in Christ. What a shame that some will be left behind. But no Christian will be left behind. We are looking for the blessed hope. God's grace will one day remove us from the presence of sin. I want you to think about this. When Jesus came the first time, it was to take sin away from us. When he comes the second time, it will be to take us away from sin. We are to be looking. Looking. Again, the return of Christ is our blessed hope. People today in the world, they look for payday. They look for holidays. They look for the weekends. Thank God it's Friday, TGIF. Brides look for their wedding day. Do you realize we have a lot more to look forward to? As Christians, we are to be looking for that day He comes. And we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We are to be living as though we are leaving. Right? Again, you see the grace of God woven all through this passage. Past salvation, present sanctifying, future securing. Justification, sanctification, glorification, and the grace of God woven through it all. I wondered this morning, have you experienced His saving grace? I may be talking to somebody this morning, you know, you know you've never really been saved. Your life's never been changed. You may have said you were saved and stood before church, done all that. But you know in your heart of hearts you've never been transformed from the inside out. But maybe the Holy Spirit's working on you this morning, drawing you to faith in Christ. What a wonderful time at Christmas. Come to Christ. Christians who profess that that has happened to you, the sanctifying grace being made more and more in the image of Christ every day. Desiring the things of God. Desiring the things of God. Loving the people of God. Loving God. Anything having to do with God. You, you love it. You're living for Him. You're wanting to be conformed more and more every day. More and more to the image of Christ. You know you've not gained complete victory over sin. But your, your whole orientation now is different. You're, you're changed. Is that happening in you? Is it? I pray that it is. And hallelujah, one of these days, one of these days, the marriage supper of the Lamb being in heaven with Him, seeing Him as He is. Isn't that going to be wonderful? Jesus said to people that, that one of these days we're going to sit down with the saints of old in heaven. 
sitting down with Abraham and Isaac and David and Noah and Jacob and Paul and Peter and James sitting there. But especially being with Jesus. Is that your blessed hope? Are you living like you're leaving? The grace of God at Christmas and beyond. Father, this morning we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your power to save and to change lives. Your power to give us a new life each and every day. Your power to transform us and to give us that blessed hope. Lord, I do pray for that one this morning. They may be young, they may be old, but they may know they've never been changed from the inside out. They've never been redeemed and justified and reconciled to you. Lord, if they sense right now your your Holy Spirit's working on their heart, convicting them and drawing them to Christ. Lord, I pray that they'd make it public this morning. Because Jesus never called secret disciples. Lord, as Christians, help us to live every day for things that are eternal and not temporal. At Christmas time is a good reminder of that. When the world around us is thinking of the temporal, that we have something greater, greater that Christ has given to us. And Lord, may we live with gratitude over that. As we're looking for that day, that we will be with you. I pray that our hope every day would only grow. Because every day gets us one day closer. May we be ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.